0: Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I am David Reed. In this edition, we're going to be hearing about data in Scotland, data valuation, and catching up with another of our former Data IQ 100 number ones. In a moment, I'll be talking to Gillian Doggett, Chief Executive of the Data Lab, about its events program, DataFest, and just how many days in a row she'd been hosting events. Yeah,
1: I think it's 11. <laughs> I think it's 11. Yeah.
0: Then, I catch up with Fires Kneiser of Standard Life and Chair of DMA Scotland about its new campaign, The Value of Data, and whether companies really understand data as an asset.
2: Uh, The simple answer is no, (laughs) which is is why people people like us exist.
0: And I talked to Andy Day, Chief Data Officer at Pepper, and our number one from 2017, about what the accolade meant to him.
3: I think other than uh... Probably my Queen Scout Award. It's the highest accolade I've ever got.
0: Plus, highlights from a talk by Shoshana Zuboff, author of Surveillance Capitalism, one of the most talked about books of the year. But first, the Data Lab is an innovation centre backed by the Scottish Government. Three years ago, it launched DataFest, a series of events focused on data, innovation and stimulating the knowledge economy in Scotland. I caught up with CEO Gillian Dogty during Data Talent, a jobs fair for employers and students, to learn about the organisation's mission.
1: I'm Gillian Doherty and I am the Chief Executive of the Data Lab. So the Data Lab is an innovation centre. We are part of our broad Scottish-wide innovation centre programme with the mission to drive economic and social benefit for Scotland. But for the Data Lab specifically, our mission is to help drive value from data for Scotland. It's a bold mission, it's a big mission, but one we thoroughly relish and feel really passionate about. The entire innovation centre programme was born from I guess an understanding several years ago from the Scottish Government and its various agencies that Scottish organisations didn't invest in research and development as much as we should do, but also the realisation that we had some of the world-leading academics in our universities who were working with companies around the world but weren't working with the company down the street. And from those two kind of challenge points... The idea was born of the Innovation Centre Programmes. The government in the first phase of the Innovation Centre programme invested 120 million across eight innovation centres, of which we are one. And uh, it's been fantastic to have that government backing. And often when I talk about the work the data lab does, it really comes together in the fact that it's government backed, we have industry engagement, and we have academia. And we are all pulling and pointing in the same direction.
0: I asked Julian whether there's an equal level of engagement across government, industry and academia.
1: Well, I think we've had great engagement from all three legs and indeed we've seen a broader engagement across a huge domain set of industry partners. But government has played its role not only in the funding and and the support of the data lab, they have fully embraced the opportunity to be part of those cohorts as well, so we've seen innovation across our local authorities, across some of our NHS boards, across our central government, Scottish government and looking at at parties and collaborations between industry and parts of the public sector almost as a user uh, of data uh, as well as our academic partners and the great thing is it's, it's at multiple levels.
0: I then asked Gillian about the Data Lab's latest development, a new hub in the Highlands and Islands.
1: We currently have three hubs, uh, that is in Aberdeen and Glasgow and Edinburgh, and we've been very fortunate as part of our next phase of funding, we are going to be opening a hub in Inverness, which we're really excited about. We are partnering with Highlands and Islands Enterprise uh, with a focus of driving data value for the Highlands and Islands, which is is a fascinating and slightly different challenge. Uh, but but really one that I think we can help make a huge difference to. They also offer different challenges. The, the tourism sector, for example, in the Highlands and Islands it is absolutely huge. And if we can use our data better across that entire sector to drive up value, it offers a, a, a different dichotomy of what you might find in the, in the Central Belt uh, or in other parts of Scotland. I think the other aspect is that our Highlands and Islands are a strong attractor for space, and for satellite launch, uh, and also for the marine environment, Uh, you know, a huge marine environment there that that has levels of data that that may not be tapped or or used to to the way it could. And I think that rural aspect is really, really important. And how do we put value from data in the hands of the masses, not just the chosen few who live in cities?
0: Finally, I wanted to know about the incredible growth which DataFest has seen.
1: So this will be our third big data fest Um, today is data talent Uh, this is our fourth data talent so uh, three years ago um, we had this idea of creating a data talent event we had our master's program we had a network into universities and we had started to build our industry network and we thought wouldn't it be great if we could bring those audiences together Uh, and it had been a great success that one day and we were all really tired after it and we thought that was a great day and how, how could we make it bigger and how could we scale the impact? And we came up with this crazy idea of running a data festival. Um, now, Scotland is famous for its festivals. The Edinburgh Festival is the biggest uh, arts and creative festival in the world. Uh, indeed, actually, I think they sell more tickets than the World Cup for the actual festival itself. So it's, it's huge so we have a pedigree in festivals. We know how to run a good festival. And we thought, well, why can't we do that for data? But again, the challenge is, how do we do that right across the country? It's not the Data Lab Conference. We don't own it. DataFest is the festival for the whole country. Scotland owns it. And we did steal the festival Fringe idea that we provide a platform. We provide a few anchor events, such as today, Data Talent. And then the community run the Fringe and it is called the Data Fringe. And that allows us to provide a scale and breadth and depth across every domain. No matter which subject you're interested in, there's something in DataFest for you. What's also great about data talent is that we get to showcase to industry the talent that we have here. We can articulate why they need to invest here in Scotland, why they should build their data teams. We're producing a pipeline of talent. They can see it they can speak to that talent and they can hire on the spot. And that's massive in this very competitive world where talent is so scarce. To have that concentration and breadth of talent in one place is really exciting. And some of the events are quite small and niche. I think our Fossils event had 15 folk attend. Um, To today, we had 500 people here. The great thing is that by engaging the community, by involving the international community, and it's great to have you here, David, from, from London, is that... i so that counts as <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's great to have you here either way. Uh, I think there is no limit to how much it can scale. I think by having passionate people showcasing and demonstrating and, and opening their doors and their, their, their eyes and their ears to, to learning new things, the sky's the limit.
0: Now, during DataFest, DataIQ ran a roundtable looking at the valuation of data. It was hosted by Firas Knesa, head of decisioning at Standard Life and also chair of DMA Scotland. I spoke to Firas in Standard Life's remarkable building in the heart of Edinburgh
2: and started by asking him about his job title. Decisioning is a very elusive term. Uh, Essentially, it's about leveraging analytical capabilities to make better uh, decisions for the customer. So we've had we've had a, a big project to kind of simplify our data architecture. Uh, try to bring multiple data sources into one, you know, single database where we're able to view the individual customer record, uh, you know, along with any kind of interaction interaction history that, that, that we have held there, which has really allowed us to leverage. The, the marketing capabilities available, so when you put Decisioning Kit uh, on, to- on top of that, then you're able to really start making the tools sing. Next, I asked him about DMA Scotland and its latest campaign,
0: The Value of Data.
2: So I'm the chairman of DMA Scotland, but Scotland is in a very unique position when it comes to data and the ambition that's kind of set out for uh, you know Scotland becoming the data capital of Europe. Uh, Last year, there's a deal which was signed, which is the Edinburgh City and Regions deal, which Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon have managed to, you know, between them cobble up a chunk of money and make it available for the improvement in uh, data skills uh, that would in turn uh, lead to massive improvement in economic growth over, over the years. So... Uh, There are many centres that have been set up in Edinburgh, the base centre being one as part of the University of Edinburgh, but there will be multiple centres that will start coming up as centres of best practice and excellence, bringing together obviously academia and uh, industry to try to solve real world tangible problems that would make an economic benefit and that's kind of one of the, the precursors of tapping into that pot of money that's been made available. And and Scotland I think is really unique in that um it, it really cherishes inclusivity uh, as a whole in that it's it's kind of been very receptive to, you know, people of, of you know different races and backgrounds and you know, to try to, 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 to fuel all of this kind of revolution if you want when it comes to data. The DMA um you know um uh, has a really uh, key and pivotal role to play within this landscape in the sense that the DMA is the largest marketing trade body uh, operating in the UK today. Uh, and I think the DMA is also the, the trade body that really looks at the customer and the best outcome for the customer. So we've seen the DMA in the past, uh, you know, influencing and lobbying around uh, GDPR, for example, to make sure that, any practices around data for the customer are above board and and you know transparent and transparent to the customer. Having just run a round table on how to value data as an asset, I asked Firas why he thought it was proving to be such a difficult challenge. To be fair, the questions that are being asked are challenging. So when we look at something like the value of data, could we put attribute a of value amount to data? Uh, what we've what we've seen is uh, the, the you know the accounting industry has. Uh, you know, uh, 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 an antiquated, if you want, so to speak, uh, approach uh, to valuation, where it's reflective of the industrial uh, revolution. Uh, you know, where intangible assets are, you know, not don't really have a place and you find data being clubbed into under under headlines in the balance sheet, like uh, goodwill. But goodwill is a very vague concept, whereas we've seen in the past, things like brand uh, having a clear value on the balance sheet and that evolution has taken place. So why is brand different than data? So If a company was selling uh, you or know, uh, being bought by another company, it becomes very pertinent to include that within the valuation of a company. Also, if you want to take an efficiency lens into an organization, how does data contribute to the efficiency of an operation? And so on and so forth. There are so many lenses that you could apply to looking at the value conversation, that actually becomes quite a complex problem that maybe is not in the hands of the accountants to resolve. And finally, we discuss the issue of trust and data protection. All of us experienced the year of GDPR last year while organizations were scratching their heads trying to figure out how they could comply with the legislation which was put. I'm personally a big fan of that legislation just because it levels the playing field, I think, and it's a playing field that needed to be leveled for a while. Um, And um, I think the brands that were really successful in the adoption of that, for example, I'd, I'd, I'd name The Guardian in this instance that won a DMA award this year, for its application of GDPR have promised that this is an ongoing conversation and it's not a conversation that's going to stop. It's not a, a tick-box exercise that you comply with GDPR or you don't comply with GDPR. It's about how could we start uh, you know, becoming more transparent to customers and by doing that, increasing trust. And I think that the DMA has a role in responding to these questions because of its customer focus because if it's in the interest of the customer uh, to to, to uh, you know to, to have that kind of comfort that the organization that they're dealing with has an ethical grounding then I think there needs to be work. I'm not saying that the DMA alone is gonna resolve this. I think it's it's very much gonna have to be a collaborative effort again between academia, industry Uh, And and not one group of people trying to solve a problem, but multiple groups of people. Now, back in 2017, we unveiled
0: our DataIQ 100 and named Andy Day, then Chief Data Officer at Sainsbury's, as the number one for that year. I caught up with Andy in a busy London hotel to find out what happened next.
3: So I'm Andy Day. I'm the group chief data officer for a business called Pepper. We're a global financial services business.
0: Andy, in February 2017, data IQ unveiled its new list of the 100 most influential people in data-driven business in the UK. And
3: we named you as the number one for that year. What are your memories of that moment? Uh, well, firstly, I can't believe it was as long ago as 2017, it feels a little bit like yesterday. Um, so, In, in, in a, an, an industry like the industry work we work in, I think uh, you know, there was a little bit of uh, uh, humbleness, that's probably the first thing, um, a huge amount of pride, a um, bit of embarrassment, that I had to go up and make a speech, but, um, but I think probably the takeaway was you know, I've worked in, in the data industry for a long time, probably 25 years. Before it was even called the data industry and, 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 and to be recognised uh, amongst oh, my peers wow. as somebody that is uh, creating a bit of a charge in the industry is fantastic, You know, very, very gratifying, very humbling. I think other than uh, probably my Queen Scout Award, it's the highest accolade I've ever got.
0: And then what happened next? What was the
3: impact of appearing in the list and being ranked like number one, if any? So probably a couple of things. The first was the number of people that knew my telephone number or how to get hold of me that wanted to sell me stuff wanted me to, uh, to to recruit people through their organisation. Uh, seemed to grow exponentially. Uh, we live in a world of exponential times, right? And uh, and, and uh, my telephone number, I think, was one of the things that grew in terms of usage exponentially at that time, which was uh, which was fine. I, I, I've always been keen to make sure that you bring the outside in in businesses. So talking to lots of suppliers about lots of different things actually is a good thing. So I didn't really mind that. Um, I think, genuinely, the, probably the most positive thing was that uh, the ability to recruit new people into my team, uh, independent of the business I worked in, uh, increased significantly. So even even as recently as yesterday, I was chatting to a guy who is uh, uh, you know, potentially going to come and join the business I'm working in now, Pepper, um, and he said, I, you know, one of the things that attracts me to, to working in Pepper is actually you and the fact that you were voting number one. So Sainsbury's as their chief data officer. Um, the back of uh, off the back of that actually, so uh, and then I left there in uh, the beginning of last year and spent quite a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do next. I, th- I think you know I've built for what it's worth a, um, a good network across the industry, not in the least part through Data IQ and the uh, and the uh, the programs that uh, that you and your colleagues run. And the reflection I had was that I worked for a long time in big corporate businesses, you know, Sainsbury's, Telefonica. News Corp, and that, uh, as my wife said, you know, the, the, the place I probably drew the most energy from was the place where uh, there was an awful lot of entrepreneurship going on. So I started to think about the, the the next businesses I could potentially work for, and out of the blue, I got a call from uh, from Mike Calhoun, who's the group chief executive of this business called Pepper. And uh, now Pepper is not a household name in the UK, uh, and having worked for household names pretty much the entire my entirety of my career, um, I was a little bit uh, unsure as to whether I wanted to go in that direction, but. I spent a long time talking to Mike, and I realised that the culture that he had built across uh, his business was absolutely sensational. Highly entrepreneurial, wanted to get th- things done, acted quickly, provided autonomy for people in the business. Um, and so I joined that business in the, uh, the be- beginning of September last year. There are a lot of people in our community across Data Analytics functions
0: uh, who are reserved about um, promoting themselves. They like to think the work is going to speak for itself. So they don't push themselves forward. They, for example, don't nominate themselves into lists like the DHRQ 100.
3: Um, what would you say to them? What, what advice would you give to those people? Although sometimes I come across as being reasonably outgoing. I'm actually quite a shy retiring person myself. You know, I'd rather, I quite like my own company. Um, and so it's, it feels a little bit odd having to promote yourself. Um, but I think in, in, in your career, you have to. You know, you can be the best data scientist, analyst, finance person, uh, but at some point you have to put your head above the parapet and say, this is what I want to stand for, this is what I want to be famous for, um, this is what I'm good at, and, and please take a bit of notice. Uh, and I don't think it's unique to the, uh, to the, 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 the world of data and analytics um, that people don't necessarily want to promote themselves, but you, you know, to get ahead, you do have to do that from time to time. So I think the only only, uh, bad thing about being number one uh, in the list is that there's only one way to go from there.
0: Finally, Surveillance Capitalism is one of the most talked-about books of the year, with its clear-eyed take on how digital platforms have rewritten the rules of the economy. It's a long book, 524 pages and one paragraph, plus footnotes. Luckily, its author, Shoshana Zuboff, was the keynote speaker at In Confidence, a conference organised by privacy technology vendor Privitar, Here are a few highlights from her talk, starting with the definition of the concept of surveillance capitalism and how technology has brought it into being.
4: Today we live in a digital world that is largely owned and operated by surveillance capitalism, for which population scale, behavioural modification, is a necessary response to its own economic imperatives, which in turn derive from the competitive dynamics of the strange new marketplace that it has established. There are many ways in which surveillance capitalism diverges from the hallmarks of market capitalism as they have developed over the centuries. But there is one key way in which it emulates the centuries-old pattern. People write about capitalism evolving in this way. It claims things that live outside of the market dynamic and it brings them into the market dynamic to turn them into, I know you know this word, commodities, things that can be sold and purchased. So famously, industrial capitalism claimed nature for the market dynamic to be sold as real estate, as land that could be purchased. All right. Surveillance capitalism works in this way too, but now with a dark and unexpected twist. Surveillance capitalism claims private human experience for the market dynamic. It unilaterally brings private human experience into its sphere where our experience is treated as a free, source of raw material, raw material for translation into behavioral data. Some of those behavioral data may be siphoned back into the improvement of products and services, but much of it is lifted out of the flow, selected on the basis of critical behavioral signals embedded in those data flows. Some people call this metadata. These are more data than are necessary to improve products and services, and so I call them behavioral surplus. The early patents that were being developed by Google scientists back in the early 2000s revealed something very special about how these new methods and mechanisms were going to be deployed. The scientists writing these patents celebrated the fact that now they could go beyond the data exhaust in Google servers. They could go online and they could find caches of behavioral surplus, data that users did not intend to disclose. Further than that, they could find various personal information online and put it together and make inferences that would indicate something about those users that they also did not intend to disclose. And what the scientists said was the great thing about this is that we know how to do this in a way that continuously bypasses users' awareness. They don't know that we're there, they don't know what we're doing, they don't know what we're taking, and they don't know why. So that was made explicit right from the beginning. The social relations of the one-way mirror were essential to these operations right from the start. And that's what puts the word surveillance in the concept of surveillance capitalism.
0: Right at the start of her talk, Zuboff examined the historical origins of behavioral modification, reaching right back to the Cold War. As she pointed out, what was being worried about in the early 1970s has now come to fruition.
4: In the Cold War, there were a lot of psychologists and social scientists working with the CIA to produce a lot of uh, behavioural modification and some other techniques they call mind control. So th- those techniques were infiltrating normal society by the 1970s and that was a cause for concern. There was another big cause for concern and that was the publication of a book by one of my former professors, B.F. Skinner, hmm. the father of radical behaviorism. And um, he just published a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Skinner despised the idea of democracy among many other ideas, like freedom and like dignity. In fact, Uh, In my graduate school department, we used to refer to this book as um, Toward Slavery and Humiliation. (laughs) That That was our name for it. Anyway, what Skinner imagined was a pervasive, quote, technology of behavior that would one day enable the application of behavior modification methods across entire human populations. By 1974, the subcommittee wrote up its final report, authored by Urban. and when you read what was in this report, you realize that between 1974 and today, 2019, our societies have gone under, have, have undergone a kind of fundamental discontinuity and I think it's happened out of our awareness and out of our control, and not necessarily with our volition. Technology has begun to develop new methods of behavior control capable of altering not just an individual's actions, but his very personality and manner of thinking. The behavioral technology being developed in the United States today touches upon the most basic sources of individuality, and the very core of personal freedom. The most serious threat is the power this technology gives one man to impose his views and values on another. The question becomes even more acute when these programs are conducted as they are today. In the absence of strict controls, as disturbing as behavior modification may be on a theoretical level. The unchecked growth of the practical technology of behavior control is cause for even greater concern. How would you feel if those words were coming out of Parliament today? How would you feel if those words were coming out of the US Congress today? Speaking for myself, I'd be be exhaling. Something I haven't done in quite a
0: long time. So there it is. That was the Data IQ podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like, link, and share. And we will be back next month with another edition. Until then, thanks for listening.